Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, March the 22nd, 2023. My current guest today asked me off screen here. He said, how many interviews do you do? And I said, too many. And I think that's true probably for the audience and myself. Although sometimes uh, they're really worthwhile. Yesterday, we did a tremendous interview, I thought. One of the best interviews, actually, in the whole series with the New York Magazine writer Kerry Howley. Um, she's interested in the idea of deep state of America and the current nature of American reality or unreality. She has a new book out, Bottoms Up and the Devil Laughs, A Journey Through the Deep State. One of the characters in her new book is a woman called Reality Winner, who was a, a whistleblower, uh, I think, at the State Department or at the NSA, now is in jail. They're making a movie about her. Uh, should be an interesting movie. She's a sort of, as I half joked with Kerry, she's an unsuccessful version of Edward Snowden. All of this, of course, touches on the idea of our world, our data-soaked world as, as one of surveillance capitalism. A few years ago, we did a show with Shoshana Zuboff, who popularized that concept in a, in a very successful book. One of the questions, though, that I brought up with Kerry was this idea. She kept on going on, well, we're all data and we all can be seen through and we're all watched like reality winner. And I said, well, what about Kafka? He existed in a pre-digital age, in an age where no one talked about data, and yet he was obsessed with the same things. And one of the things I asked her was where data came from or how data happened. It's not her thing, and we had an interesting conversation. Data is a word that is used enormously in our data-soaked world, and not everyone knows exactly what it means or indeed has thought about it. My guest today, however, has Chris Wiggins, teaches um, math and information at Columbia University. He's the chief data scientist at the New York Times and also the founder of Hack NY. And he is the co-author of a new book, appropriately enough or conveniently enough for this show, How Data Happened, a history from the age of reason to the age of algorithms. And he's joining us from his office in Columbia University in New York City. Chris, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. Um, so let's start with, with an easy question for you, Chris. What, what is data? What, what do we mean by this word? Yeah, I really like uh, thinking about words in terms of their etymologies. Um, you, you mentioned Kafka. You probably know Milan Kundera's Ignorance. So chapter two opens up with an etymology of nostalgia. And by thinking about the etymology of that word, it really sets the scene for the rest of, of this book. Data comes from a word that means to give in Latin. And I like that data simply means a, a fact that's been given to you. Now, the reason I think that's a useful framing for data is data comes with a sort of objectivity and um, it doesn't invite you to critique it or to question it. It's just, look, I was given this data. That's, that's the extent of my, um, my understanding of it. Part of what the book seeks to introduce to people is the way that data can be contested. Uh, and in current day, 
all of the subjective design choices that go into the way that data are generated and the, and that those data become instantiated as product with their own subjective design choices. So we're inviting the reader to, to think more critically about truth, even if truth is, is backed up by data, uh, as well as digital products that are all emp these days empowered by data one way or the other. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about the the power, the etymological power of data. Uh, I always have two rules with guests on the show. Whenever they say the data shows or the research shows, it always suggests to me that it doesn't, that they're making stuff up or grasping at straws. Do you think that when people say the data shows, they're consciously trying to pull the, the wall over people's eyes? Or are we always looking for some sort of certainty? Is that part of the history of data? Because your book is a history of data from what you call the age of reason to the age of algorithms. Both halves of that are true. So you framed it as either or, but I think it's true that everybody wants certainty, right? So somebody who's making an argument wants that argument to, to have certainty behind it. Whether or not somebody's intentionally saying, well, the data show in order to, um, to disinvite critical inquiry, um, it's hard to paint a broad brush uh, for that usage of data. I, I do think, though, I, I hopefully I avoid saying the data show rather than I'm, I'm saying, like, whose research shows this or what methods suggest that. Um, part of really what we've found in teaching the class, or at least what I've found in the class, is that although I'm a trained scientist, uh, it really showed me how little we know about how we know what we know, how, how we decide that something is science and how we decide that something is true. Um, so yes, in general, when somebody presents you data about something, I, part of the book will aim you with a historical backdrop for critiquing it and investigating it and, and encourage you to, to think more deeply about something, even if data are powering some alleged truth. Uh, the book is called How Data Happened, a history from the age of reason to the age of algorithms. It's written by you, Chris, of course, uh, with... Um, Matthew Jones. Your background is as a mathematician. That's where I think your formal training was. Um, is being trained in math, is that helpful or a hindrance in terms of becoming a historian of the idea of data? Mostly harmful. I mean, so my academic training, so my academic training was in theoretical physics, which is a very mathy thing. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And in fact, my PhD advisor is now in a department called Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics. So I was trained in a background where theoretical physics and applied math are part and parcel of the same way of investigating the world, but it's not a deeply historical crowd. Um, and, in, and technologists, even more so, uh, don't think of themselves as people who find history useful often. You know, part of, uh, if you're in San Francisco, San Francisco thinking these days often involves first principles. Um, and first principles often means not doing your reading and it's, it's a different way of thinking from what I consider the ultimate sort of root cause thinking, which is actually understanding how things got that way. Um, I had the benefit of one or two teachers who taught technical subjects with a historical lens. So um, Jim Peebles taught my quantum mechanics class my first year at Princeton, and he, and he taught it chronologically. It's not difficult to do for technologists because technological knowledge often builds on itself. It's just that people very rarely are interested in teaching the people who advanced that knowledge, what their interests were, um, and again, the subjective design choices that went into it. 
again, though, I think that gets back to your question about what even is data. Data comes with this sense of objectivity. Science likes to think of itself as a set of objective facts. So the more that you teach science or think about science as something done by scientists, the more that it complicates that sort of black and white narrative that science is objectively true and sort of we all would have the same facts, irrespective of whether or not, you know, Watson and Crick were motivated by this particular thing or stole their data from Rosalind Franklin or something like that, or the externalities that led people to pursue nuclear physics and the way that that sort of influenced uh Particle physics post-World War II, these are complications that are not usually part of a technical education. Are you, in a way, um, Chris, hiding behind etymology? Are you suggesting that these are just words and that we have to investigate these words critically? That's why I asked you about whether your training as a theoretical physicist or a mathematician was a help or a hindrance. I'm guessing that sometimes you have to take that theoretical physicist's cap off in this etymological investigation because the two may be kind of contradictions. Um, uh, are you, or maybe let me try and rephrase the question. Are, are you suggesting that data is always some sort of cultural or political construction, a way of trying to seize control? Is, is data ultimately political? I don't know that I would say always because, you know, data can be, can have a variety of origins, but for the particular problems that we're investigating in the, in the book. So the, the book opened up was the book opens up by saying, what are the stakes? Like, what are the, what are the reasons why it might be useful to think critically about data and data empowered algorithms? Um, and then we go directly back to some of the first usages of data to try to quantify society. They, attempts to construct a social physics using the latest technology of the day. So I don't know that I would say that all data comes with politics, but data with politics are the particular data we're really interested in this book. I like to say to the students, you know, every class should be about truth and power, but this class and this book is definitely about data and truth and data and power. So within the set of all data that have been pondered by human beings over the last, you know, 300 years, the data we're particularly focused on in this book is, is data that has some political valence where, you know, the data somehow alters who can do what to whom and, and comes with some sort of alternation of power. It's a history book rather than a scientific book, Chris. Um, is it in that Foucaultian, Michel Foucault school of uh, thinking about history as power of one kind or another? Because he wrote famous books about the history of, of medicine, the history yeah. of madness. Are you putting data in that Foucaultian uh, camp, in, in, in that jar? It's definitely an influence on both me and my co-author. My co-author, even more so, literally, if you go to his office, you will see a whole row of Foucault. It's, it's kind of amazing. I'm, I myself, as an undergraduate um, at Columbia College, actually um, went through the core curriculum, which included things like... Um, Nietzsche's genealogy of morals certainly has a, an etymological deconstruction of what we mean by good or noble. Right, and Foucault, of course, is is just I, sort of a French version, or not a very good French. Sometimes, or, or not as good a, uh, a version of Nietzsche as Nietzsche himself. So, yes, right. and then later in the semester, we got to discipline and punish by Foucault. So, certainly, it's had an influence on the way I think about um, architecture and society, uh, and more generally, if you think about architecture as including technology. Socio-technological systems, um, which of which we are um, 
definitely experiencing, right? Every one of these systems that are driving our society, it's really a socio-technological system. E even large language models, they are, after all, trained on our own data, data coming from society. Um, so yeah, I, I would say Foucault is definitely part of our background. We, we, we don't foreground it very much in the book, that, that particular intellectual tradition, but certainly for me, and even, even more so for my, my co-author, that's an intellectual tradition we're coming from and hope to respond to. So we haven't mentioned the T word yet, Chris, truth. Um, one of the criticisms of Foucault, and I, I probably would be included in this, probably more of a conservative criticism, is that he does away with the idea of truth. Everything is etymological. Everything yeah. is historical. Yeah. And this is particularly relevant in your history of data, because as you say, um, when people use the term data, they really mean at least in their mind, the idea of truth, that the data shows, which means that's truth. Are you suggesting in your history of data that truth itself is, to, to, to borrow that French word, a construction? I would not go that far. And in fact, when I was in graduate school in the 90s at Princeton was a time of intense science wars. So uh, a lot of my conversations, not in the classroom, but outside of the classroom, um, were with good friends in sociology who were experiencing exactly that kind of deconstruction of science and, and the argument that all science is social construct. Um, so yeah, pushing, pushing back against that was a big part of my, my graduate experience. Um, I wouldn't say that all, all truth is mere social construct. That said, something I argue all, all the time in class is science is done by scientists. Scientists are human beings, whether they know it or not. And that the path of science and the, and the way we construct truth is is subject to externalities about about who we are and and what our motivations are and what our interests are. Um, so I wouldn't go so far as saying all science is is social social construct. It can be true at the same time that a conclusion is true, and yet the conclusion is also something that we reach in a world that's influenced by the fact that we are human beings in a society, right? So it's possible for two things to be true at the same time, right? It, it may be true that the universe is expanding. It, it may be true that we know the particular value of, of some, you know, the speed of light or something else. And yet it can also be true that the fact that we think that that's important and the methods that we use for reaching that fact are very much influenced by, by human society. That's, that's a, a, a marriage of two views of science that I've, I've, I've had a hard time over the last couple of decades coming to peace with, but I think they're both true at the same time. Chris, you're obviously a, a, a skillful intellectual tightrope walker. And one of the things that came up in my conversation with Kerry Howley was the idea of there being a single, a singular truth when it comes to journalism at a place like the New York Times. She rejected that. She thinks that truth has been fragmented in social media and scattered and shattered. Uh, for you, as the chief data scientist at the New York Times, which is, is quite a title to have and quite an honor. Do you sometimes sort of struggle in, in, in a way uh, with that uh, in the context of your other life as a data scientist, a, a writer, a professor, and in some ways, uh, a, a relativist when it comes to the idea of data? Because after all, the New York Times claims to be authoritative. It claims to, 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 to be not just unbiased, which of course it is, like everyone is biased, but to be that old-fashioned newspaper which 
um, which reflects the world as it is. Right. So, um, you know, I'm the beneficiary of knowing my own limits. And my limits include I do not possess the craft of journalism. Right? I, I, I possess the ability to pr propose, suggest, refine machine learning models and to um, develop and deploy those machine learning models. So I don't claim to have um, a particular view on uh, journalism and truth. That said, in my experience working with journalists, I find journalists to be very much like scientists and other researchers. They are interested in the truth. Uh, they pursue it to the best of their ability. Journalists, of course, have to do it on the deadline in, in a way that academics don't have to to work. Um, but I don't think that journalists feel like the story is over once they chop their story down to something that's going to fit and then hit pub. I, I don't get the sense that journalists think that what they're producing is is objectivity. Um, I do. I, they, I, you know journalists well enough to know that part of the debate among journalists is the the false notion of the view from nowhere, you know, that there's this sort of voice that over the last century uh, journalists have written in, which is this, this attempt to create a, a perspective on things that belies nothing about the subjective, the subjectivity of the, the journalists and the editors and the other people who actually crafted the story. I don't think that that's something that's at the forefront of people's current way of framing what the New York Times or any other um, newspaper is putting out. I think they do their best they can. As human beings, I found them to be very much like scientists in that they have their own forms of, of, of their craft, certainly, and also peer review, you know, that they're very attuned to what's going on with their peer institutions. They don't like getting scooped, but they also definitely don't like getting it wrong. So they work hard at, at, at trying to getting it, trying to get it right, right? Get it first, but also get it right, as they sometimes say. Um, but no, I haven't found... I've never had a journalist say, like, this is objectively true. I've never heard a, a journalist claim that. They do the best they can. They're very good at their job. Um, and they're, they're, they're seekers, right, in the same way that scientists and researchers. Well, what about, though, on the other end, when you talk to someone who is an avid reader, the many avid readers of the New York Times, and you might be talking to them about the situation in Ukraine or with Trump or with inequality in America or many other controversial issues. And they'll say, well, I read it in the New York Times. So the data shows that Putin is guilty or Trump should be in jail or we need a socialist revolution or America needs to reinvent itself as Denmark. What would you say to people like that? Should they read, and, and as the chief data scientist at the Times, should they read it with a degree of skepticism, just as they should read the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times or the New Yorker or any other publication? Yeah, I mean, I think you should ingest everything with some amount of skepticism. Like, that's in academia, we're trying to train critical thinkers. Um, so, yes, everybody should understand the sources that they're reading, whether that's a scientific paper or um, a newspaper, right? And they should understand... Um, where it comes from and how the arguments are made. And certainly when there's data, they should understand the limitations of what instrument was used to gather those data, what data were collected and what data were not collected, which is itself a subjective design choices, even irrespective of machine learning models, just that the choice to gather some data and not to gather some other data can have politics. Well, let's get to the core of the book, How Data Happened, a history from the age of reason to the age of algorithms. Chris, how did data happen in the age of reason? Yes. So part of what we dig into is the way that the scientific revolution, as it's sometimes called, um, 
16th century and 17th century was the tech of the day and was and, and suddenly became epistemologically the way that people knew something was true. And for a variety of thinkers, they, they were so inspired by the method, which was perfected on things like celestial mechanics. And they wanted to take that method, that way of understanding the world, including mathematical framing and the use of data, and apply it to more important things like society. So um, we go back in the book, again, getting back to etymology, we, we sort of open the book with the etymology of the word statistics. So when you say the word statistics today, people think of it as a field of mathematics and making sense of data. We remind people that um, the word itself has nothing to do with math or data. In fact, it was about how you run the state. It was about statecraft. So we open the book talking about how when the word entered the English language, right away you see fights between people for whom statecraft was about studying the greatness of the men who ran the countries rather than quantifying the area or the wealth or the number of people or animals in a country. So right away that fight about whether or not something important to us should be quantified uh, is there at the birth of literally the birth of the word statistics in the English language in the 18th century. Right away in the 19th century, um, we take the story of um, Adolf Catlet, who's a multidisciplinary scientist. He was an uh, astronomer who wanted to take uh, the methods, including the, the bell curve or the normal distribution, as it was called, and try to use it to understand society. He wanted to take celestial mechanics and use it to construct social physics. That story, I, I think, also resonates with present day, in which people want to take whatever is the latest truth-making of the day, whatever epistemological tool and scientific tool we have and try to apply it to other really important problems. For Ketley, it was understanding humanity and, and he was very interested in averages. He wanted to know what the average man was uh, and, and use that to understand society. And thereafter, people started studying what, are, what they called moral topics, the amount of crime, the amount of suicide, um, deviance, uh, so to speak. Uh, and at that point, people start using data to try to start to make policy statements. This occurs around the time of the, the waning Victorian empire. And so there's a lot of writing about the greatness of the, of the empire and how are we going to preserve the, the British empire and make it great again? Um, and how can we use the latest tech du jour, which in this case was statistics and then soon after correlation and regression in order to inform policy decisions? Uh, so that's that's how we start. That's the, that's sort of the milieu of part one of the book. Yeah, it's interesting that nothing much has changed. We did a show with Meredith Broussard recently, a New York University professor. I'm sure you know her work. I was, I was just at her. I was just at her book launch two days. Yeah, ago. she has a new book out, More Than a Glitch, where she wants to use, I guess, data or perhaps avoid using data to right. right some of our racial and other cultural wrongs. Um, it, Correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but I seem to remember that the word statistic was invented by Jeremy Bentham. Am I right? It's not what the OED credits it. So the OED credits it as coming from a German uh, encyclopedia of all knowledge, which then gets translated into 1770 into the English language. But the reason I bring up um, Bentham, of course, is because as the, not just the father of utilitarianism, but the father of the panopticon, he yeah. seemed to bring together this new world of data and reason and surveillance and control. Uh, Foucault, of course, wrote extensively about Bentham. I wrote a whole book about Bentham called Digital Vertigo. Um, do you see Bentham and that 
tradition of utilitarianism as the intellectual foundations of the history of data? We don't, I don't think we include Bentham in the book. I, so certainly Bentham's uh, vision of the Panopticon informs later chapters and also utilitarianism informs later chapters. So the so surveillance and surveillance capitalism and our norms and how we've come to accept that certainly informs the later chapters where we talk about digital products and the way they interact with our lives. And also utilitarianism um, features into our book when we talk about the battle for ethics. So um, there's been a, a, a big call, I would say, for the last decade for people to think about the ethics of uh, data-empowered algorithms and automated decision systems. It's unclear what people mean when they talk about ethics, you know, when a company hires an ethical AI group or fires an ethical AI group. Um, it's often done without really being clear about what they mean by ethics, um, let alone whether ethics refers to a product or a decision or a person. Bentham and more generally utilitarianism features into the academic understanding of ethics as one of several principles, right? So utilitarianism is one principle. Another is um, a principle sometimes called respect for persons, which includes the idea that other people should have informed consent, which is sort of different, whether or not the different from the consideration of whether the trolley is going to run over four people or five people. Um, and then of course, justice, which is somewhat normative, but also somewhat philosophical. So we present ethics using the, the framework from human subject research in the academic research community. It's an applied tradition dating certainly back to the 1970s in the States as a, a way of understanding ethics, which is not just utilitarianism, rather utilitarianism is just one of the three principles that um, that sort of bother people. When people look at, at digital products and they say that product is bad, we're trying to give people a, an analytic framework for saying what do people mean by that's bad. One of them is utilitarianism. Yeah, utilitarianism is interesting in the sense that it quantifies or perhaps datifies good and bad. That Bentham <laughs> believed that we could measure them and that if... And predict if, it, by the way. And predict, yeah. Uh, so, so prediction is kind of interesting because with the trolley problem in the cartoon, it's pretty real clear what's going to happen. Yeah, and, and just explain that not everyone will be familiar with the, 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 the trolley problem, which is a particularly interesting one that I think was invented by a 20th century female British... Yeah data scientist or mathematician or philosopher. We actually did a show on her. I can't remember her name. Oh, fantastic. Okay, so yes, it's, it's a very recent intellectual construct um, and it's also easy to just put in a cartoon. So if you've ever seen a cartoon on, the, on Twitter of, of a trolley, a train, that's headed toward a track that splits and then usually there's a human being who has agency to decide whether the train is going to go on the left or the right track, then usually you put something on the left track and something on the right track and it's an attempt, it's a cartoonish attempt to reduce ethics to merely the utilitarian construct, which is, are you going to do more damage by going to the left or to the right? Or are you going to kill 10 old people or one baby? Um, yes. So let, let's go back to the Victorian period. I know you spent quite a lot of time on it and, and you connect the history of data with the history of eugenics. Absolutely. Uh, you deal a lot with the, the post-Darwinian age. I think you yeah. touch on Sir Francis Galton. Yeah. I, I know you're not going to go as far as this, maybe... Foucault would, but are you connecting uh, the history of data with the history of colonialism and the history of racial attempts to create scientific attempts by, I don't know, quasi-scientists to build 
racial hierarchies of intelligence, which is what eugenics is? I mean, not only are we, we do, and any intellectual tradition of statistics would be dishonest if it didn't mention it. Galton is a great example. Galton gave us the word correlation. Galton gave us the word regression. Galton gave us the word eugenics. By the way, all of these people saw themselves as very progressive. You know, they didn't see themselves as the baddies who were, you know, trying to be evil. They saw themselves as people who were trying to better society. So there's a lot to unpack there, um, including the fact that um, there's room for scientists, scholars, and product developers to be self-critical and to, and to reflect, are we, are we the baddies? You know, are, are we building something that's actually violating some sort of sense of ethics? Um, anyways, you can't tell the history of data without being honest about what was motivating Galton, Pearson, plenty of other people. I, and I think people are, are starting to be honest about that. You know, um, an example is there's a, a very august statistics department who until recently their, their webpage was Galton dot the name of that university edu. They've since changed it. Um, even, you know, Fisher and other founders of statistics are, are being now questioned. And Andrew, you brought up colonialism. There's definitely um, an attention in the book to how this impacted, for example, India, one of uh, Britain's most um, <laughs> uh, impacted colonies, uh, certainly the, the British occupation of, of India for both under England's government and under the East Indian Company had tremendous impact on, on contemporary Indian civilization, including the reification of caste. And anyways, there, there's a lot to be unpack around colonialism and its impact outside the United States. We also, of course, talk about it. Right, I, I want to get to the United States. Perhaps it's no coincidence, uh, Chris, that John Stuart Mill, the father of I guess we might call it utilitarian liberalism, also worked all his life as his day job in the East India Company. We, we did um, a whole show about British colonial raping of, of, of India. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but let's get to, there's so much here to unpack. We, we can't spend all day here. Um, what about the, the history of the United States? It wasn't a colonial power, but they also used data. We did a show last year with Dan Book. He has an interesting oh, yeah. show on... Great. Yep, his data, the hidden stories in the U.S. census and how to read them. So he's a historian of the way in which data was used in the U.S. census. What was the role of data in the foundation of American democracy? Were the, were the founding fathers, did they use the word um, and were they interested in the aggregation of data? And, yeah. and how did that play out in the early history? I, I'm sure it was also particularly relevant in the history of slavery. Yes. Well, I mean, like, it's, it's hard to find anything in American history that doesn't have slavery in it. Um, right. Uh, but certainly it was it was of interest to the founding fathers because they put it in the Constitution. They actually put in the Constitution, you have to run a census. So that sort of scientific thinking uh, was certainly in their mind, you know, that part of running the United States successfully was going to include a regular enumeration of, of persons. Right? Even though uh, black people were... I think yeah. mathematically considered what half or a quarter or something. So that's that's another story, Chris. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. But that's true. Like we, the census. Yeah, we don't we don't spend a lot of time on the three fifths compromise. We do spend um, more time on post Civil War attempts to scientifically prove, for example, um, that blacks are uninsurable. Right. So we spend a little time on um, Frederick Hoffman, who in eighteen ninety six. Uh, writes this, actually, Dan Book might have talked to you about it. Um, Hoffman is a hired gun for the insurance industry 
um, interested in showing that uh, essentially black people are uninsurable. And we also spent some time on the, um, actually the, the experiment which gave rise to the American conception of applied ethics, which is the Tuskegee um, experiment, which it's usually called Tuskegee experiment, but really it should be referred to by the name of the U.S. taxpayer funded agency that ran it. In any event, yes, there's absolutely a lot to be said about the history of data and, and politics, right? We talk about data and power that often shows up in, again, whether it's the caste system in India and in the way that people are going to be enumerated there or the history of slavery, which is kind of the history of, of America, um, and the ways that numbers show up in in getting getting back to that history, particularly post-Civil War. So pre-Civil War, there's not a lot of need for science to um, exert power because power is already there in the state. Post-Civil War, uh, there's a lot of renewed attention to how can we use statistics to argue for um, race science, right? Or, or Stephen Jay Gould called it quantitative racism. Mm. And it shows up in the early foundation of the IQ test, um, um, you know, the Terman Binet IQ test, the, the, the first definition of intelligence before our current incarnation, where we try to define intelligence based on, you know, chatting or something like that. Before that was an original attempt to define intelligence and to quantify intelligence, which gave birth to IQ testing. All this, of course, is in the analog age. We haven't even talked digital yet. And there's so much here, Chris. Let's fast forward to the digital revolution, the ultimate data company, of course, is Google, who we all rely on one way or the other. Um, what Shoshana Zuboff calls the age of surveillance capitalism. It, in the way that you historicize data, in your history of data, is there anything particularly different between the age of uh, eugenics, of, of Galton and Darwin, of the US census, and the age of Google? That's why we brought the book into to three parts. So part one is really the, the pre-digital age. Part two commences with Bletchley Park and uh, the creation of computation. So computation was really, there's a, a pivotal point in World War II where, where digital computation is is birthed and it's created for a data science problem, namely to deal with streams of messy data. And then in part three, we really talk about, um, well, for example, Google or other. Um, Can I assume uh, Alan Turing was? Alan Turing absolutely shows up. We try. Yeah, we yeah try which and... adds a wrinkle to all this, but that's another story as well. We've done a couple of shows on Turing. So okay. yeah, Turing shows up in two consecutive chapters. He shows up in the chapter on Bletchley Park, which is about creation of digital, comp digital computation. And then he shows up in the subsequent chapters, which was about the creation of artificial intelligence. So it's a, it's a great story, Turing's yeah. 1850 paper, which um, the lesson that I learned from that paper is don't try to define intelligence. So yeah, and Turing <laughs> could have been invented by uh, Michel Foucault as a fictional character had he not actually existed. But anyway, let, let's get up to the, the digital revolution. Okay. And then, so part two is about how um, data became an engineering concern rather than a mathematical concern. Uh, and we go from focusing on what's true to power. And in particular, by the time we're done with uh, part two, we've shown how the ability to gather lots of data is a state concern first. Uh, and then becomes a corporate concern, uh, which really gets us to the present day. State and corporate is there. Do I sniff a little bit of libertarian 
libertarianism here, a hostility both to organizations like the state and, uh, and corporations? Isn't that inevitable, unavoidable? I hope not. So by the time we get to the final chapter, we try to analyze power in terms of corporate power, state power, and people power. And we try, in general, we try in the book not to say what should be, but um, in that, in the final chapter, we try to analyze contests among those three sort of power centers, um, state power, which we often think of as things like regulation, corporate power, which is uh, really dominating present day, and people power, which is an underappreciated um, player in that sort of unstable three-player game which includes the way that all of us are empowering companies by giving them our data, by giving them our money, um, the indirect way that we empower state, we empower corporate power via state power in democracies where we have some influence as members of the electorate. And then finally, um, what lawyers call private ordering in the way that employees of these companies can have massive impact on the direction of, of the companies by walkouts and leaks and by their own decisions every day as technologists. Yeah, that's the, the world that Kerry Howley describes. This, the Silicon Valley take, Chris, from out here is that the digital revolution frees us from the structures of power, which um, which you write about in the book, in the analog age, the state and large companies and theories like eugenics. Is, is there any truth to that? Or is really, as Shoshana Zuboff and so many other people have argued, Google is just uh, a Google and companies like Google, these big data companies are just really a continuation of what happened in the 18th and 19th century. I don't know that I would agree with either framing. So, um, you know, libertarianism clearly has its limits, right? Like until you have a Silicon Valley bank uh, crisis and then suddenly everybody's, well, not everybody, but suddenly many people are, are calling, reminding the state of its um, roles to intervene. I, I think people who, even look briefly at historical literature, we'll see that these companies are not created independent of state support. Google, after all, is born of a patent, and that patent is held not by Larry and Sergey, but by Stanford. Why? Well, because PageRank was funded by National Science Foundation Research, right? And I, you know, I'm sure you've talked to other guests over the years about the way that uh, state funding of Corporate and military concerns gave rise to Silicon Valley itself. Yeah, Mariana Mazzucci wrote a whole book about it, about the, yeah. the Apple iPhone. So yeah, so so go on. So I mean, first of all, it's not the case that corporations exist independently of the state, state support, whether it's funding or the the regulations that make possible um, the way that technologies are created. So we we have some reference in the book to trying to encourage people to think about the state not just as a big fence that sort of limits people, but rather it provides the infrastructure and often the funding, which has made a lot of our innovation possible. Um, you know, uh, Steve Blank calls this the secret history of Silicon Valley, that Silicon Valley was really ultimately supported via um, Cold War concerns and, and born of Cold War concerns. Is there then, I, I mean, what is, is there a... Is there an agenda in the book? I mean, as you acknowledge, there's an agenda in everything. What are you saying? I would certainly say there's like a mission in the book, right? I mean, What's the, the mission? Book, well, the book grew out of a class. So, I mean, the okay, class... But you're right, go on, sorry. So the, so the class and the book have a mission of trying to arm people with an analytic framework that sort of, uh, it slows down things, right? You, you yourself have talked about how people try to outrun, they feel like they want to outrun AI or um, 
or Ezra Klein wrote that he, he feels like he just wants AI to so, somehow slow down. One way to slow things down is to take a historical lens. And that historical lens helps you see how present day headlines fit within a 200 year arc, right? And in addition, there's all these ways that history is useful by looking at prior contests and seeing who were the belligerents in that contest and how was that contest resolved. And that lens gives us a chance to think creatively about how our present day could change and how our present day contests might have many ways of, of being resolved. So the agenda is to give people an, an analytic framework for understanding what seems to be a, a frantic pace of innovation around data. And similarly, to, as to get back to this subject we just had about the final chapter, to give people an understanding of all the powers at play. I, you, you listen to people have conversations about what's going on, and they often have a sense that, well, there's a problem, and so we should grab for state response, or we should grab for this this company should out-innovate um, this other company, or we grab for um, people power and the role of, of private ordering, and people should do such and so. So part of the final chapter is to say to people, there's, there's many tools at our disposal, and, and the dynamics of, of innovation are part of this unstable three-player game. Here I'm, I'm borrowing a metaphor from, from Bill Janeway, who's a venture capitalist and, and economist. He talks about the unstable game of, of how innovative companies are funded. We, we try to present that as, more generally, this unstable game among centers of power. So that's the agenda, is to give people some sort of analytic understanding for understanding how we got here and where we're all going. Well, let's end with the, the key question that everybody is asking in our age of GPT-4. Um, Google just came out with its own version yesterday, Bard. Even Sam Altman, the, uh, the CEO of OpenAI, has suggested he's scared by the social and cultural implications of GPT-4. Um, if people read your book, uh, Chris, really carefully, how data happened, a history from the age of reason to the age of algorithms. You mentioned um, Ezra Klein, who's also written about his fear of AI, GPT-4, and the role of the state. What lessons would they get from this book about confronting this new age, what you call, I guess, the age of algorithms we're really entering now with GPT-4? Well... Hopefully, the lesson about um, what powers are at our, at are at our disposal um, for um, constraining and guiding our our subjective design choices about products that we create and that we use. Um, some sense for the history of neural networks and how, like, you know, we're really just inheriting a vision from from arguably 1943 about using artificial neural networks to do computations. Um, some limit on the way that we think about um, the output of these products as being intelligence. Uh, so I want to I want to push back on on that idea, um, and also some analytic understanding of ethics. Right. So OpenAI and other companies um, have active policy teams that are trying to think about what are going to be the ethical impacts uh, on society and on and on users of these new capabilities. In fact, in fact, um, OpenAI has had a policy team since at least 2019, like back in the days of GPT-2. So um, one of the things we want to do is to give people an analytic framework for understanding what do we mean by ethical, um, how are these ethical contests resolved and defined, how do we get to some sort of at least common vocabulary about what we mean by ethics. Um, I think those are going to be tools that are going to stay useful. 
Well, let's end with a, 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 a simple yes or no, Chris. The, the, the debate these days, Ezra Klein talks about it, everybody's talking about it, is whether or not the state should become more aggressively involved in regulating OpenAI and BARD and GPT-4 and all the rest of these generative AI products that are about to revolutionize society. So rather than a long answer, in your view from, from your book, uh, your new book that's out uh, this week, How Data Happened to History from the Age of Reason to the Age of Algorithm. Are you, are you in favor, or people who read the book, would they be in favor of more or less, should the state get involved, yes or no? One word answer. Impossible to distill down into one bit of information. My but regret. Chris, isn't this the problem with your approach is you're not really willing to answer the, the important questions. You, you hide behind etymology and a complex narrative, which is really interesting and important, but you still have to be able to answer this question, a, a simple yes or no, more or less regulation. But that is, that is the job of a book which aims to give people a framework rather than tell people a simple yes or no answer. That in that sense, I'm more of a professor than a priest. I'm not here to, to tell people what should happen. I will say um, that if you read the book, you'll get a sense for how different our, our current day is from, say, the 1970s when there was active um, pushback on the use of data, except it was coming from the state. And many of the acts and regulations that we rely on today to enforce consumer protection were born of that very analogous fight in the late 60s and early 70s, where people suddenly realize, wow, putting a bunch of data together can be really invasive um, and can really uh, be detrimental to our lives. In the 1970s, it was around overreach of state control. We are presently at a nadir in terms of the role of the government, US government, to enforce consumer protection and to um, and to address national security concerns around technology. I, so rather than quote myself, I'll, I'll quote my, my Columbia colleague, Tim Wu, who's, who writes regularly for the New York Times and has actually spent time in the White House. So he's more qualified to answer the questions than I about should. Just wrote this week about, you know, saying that we should ban TikTok. In fact, I think the, the subheadline there was something like banning TikTok should just be the beginning. So there's certainly more... Um, expert and experienced policy and even White House um, alumni than I arguing that that it is time for uh, a stronger role for regulation, which, by the way, doesn't have to be U.S. federal government. There's also local, local municipalities. GDPR is a good example of a European regulation, which for any company that's a multinational co uh, corporation, regulations outside the United States entirely are also shaping product decisions around algorithms. So I don't know that I would I don't know that I want to you know, play the role of priest and tell people what they should do. Uh, but as in the role of professor, I can say we are at a time where there's a lack of regulation and there seem to be many forces that are interested in increasing the role of the state generally, not just the United, the federal United States in advancing consumer protection and defense of and national security concerns. Now, there you have it. We've had the professor on data. Now we need to get Tim Wu, the priest, Chris Wiggins, a co-author of How Data Happened. Congratulations on the new book and uh, fascinating conversation. So much more to talk about. We'll have you back on the show. But again, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.